Okay, so speaking last, we've got Marjan Groot, who's going to be um, giving a paper today titled Material Objects and Visual Web Presentation for Virtual Peace yeah. Palace Museum. So good morning, everybody. Um, before I start my paper, I want to ask you, who ever visited the Peace Palace? It's only one, and he comes from <laughs> South America. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's on the left here. This is the one, I think. Yeah. And there you see a souvenir. And there are the two um, basic elements of my paper. Um, the Peace Palace actually uh, is quite important, as, and my talk will be about peace, not about war, but the thing is, um, when you talk about peace, you immediately talk about war, whereas if you reverse it, if you talk about war, you don't talk about peace. <laughs> you talk about like um, power and, and territory, that sort of thing. So, um, but it's inevitable, and um, therefore we will need some war as well. And the Peace Palace today is actually very much active, although it has been built in 1913, so one year before World War II broke out, which is, of course, terribly ironical. <laughs> um, it is active as uh, it houses the Permanent Court of Arbitration and also the International Court of Justice, uh, to which many countries can appeal if they have uh, a military conflict. And the idea is that the conflict is solved in negotiation, uh, so peaceful, not leading to a war. <coughs> That's why it is, has an important function, and many um, countries acknowledge it, and uh, there is also often uh, booked with conferences, etc. So that is important uh, to remember. And um, it's also important that if you want to examine the peace palace, that you find that yourself, you are interacting between a past and the present, and between different levels of material culture, and also between various media. And um, the Peace Palace is a heritage building, it's UNESCO heritage, and it has opportunities from the past due to its material presence, but also uh, with regard to today's media possibilities. So my presentation has three parts, and I sort of <coughs> summarize the part because it's difficult to read it all. Um, I want to compare the highbrow culture of the Peace Palace, so the real thing, the, the edifice, like I said, it is a heritage monument, uh, and it is the field of the traditional media uh, examined by art and architecture historians and design historians. Next, we have the, the lowbrow, we could say, material culture of the souvenirs and the memorials on the Peace Palace. Uh, they are still traditional media, they are material objects, but they have been mostly studied by anthropologists, sociologists, cultural studies, and <coughs> with important work done by Walter Benjamin, Ronald Barth, Marcel Maus. Um, of course, design historians now like to also study um, souvenir things, but normally the, the two fields were separated, so for, for my sake I s sort of put them apart a little bit. And then the third thing is what comes in is the web as a mediator to dissolve the lowbrow, highbrow 
dichotomy and to, to reach a wider audience through new media. And then I ended up uh, in the media studies field using uh, work by Manovic, Campanelli and other people. And um, what happens here, I think, as a design and art historian, is that we get a certain loss of materiality, as I would say, a loss of sensorial experiences. And Claire passing around the, uh, the artillery shell when we started the conference is a very good example because she wants to show us that uh, the material thing is, is very important. And so there's something happening here and we cannot escape the web today and yet we need to think about what it does to our material culture. So that was my main question also. How can I theorize the mediation of objects via the web when I compare the real edifice and its, its material presence in the city and the real object, the souvenir objects, uh, with the visual, the visual properties of this internet, uh, which are also visual. Um, but before I'm going to that, I'll show you why the Peace Palace uh, was founded. Uh, as you can see, there were many, many wars <laughs> uh, from mid-19th century onwards. Crimean War, American War, and, and they were all throughout the world, which is important because the Peace Palace is an international palace, uh, an effort of initially 26 countries. Then there was, um, in 1899, a Hague Peak Conference. Um, then in 1903, the, the Andrew Carnegie, he donates 1.5 million uh, dollars for the Peace Palace. And it's funny that none of you ever visited the palace since Carnegie is a very well-known uh, Scotsman who uh, went to America and made his fortune there in uh, railroads and steel, etc. He was enormously rich. By the time, I think it is Bill Gates plus someone else today. <laughs> and of course, his name lives on. Eh? Carnegie Hall, uh, Carnegie Mellon, that sort of institute. So he donates that. And actually, the uh, Carnegie Foundation, up to this day, uh, they are in charge of the building of the palace. Not the institutions that are housed, but the building. And, uh, sorry, then in 1906, there's another uh, peace conference in The Hague. Uh, the Hague, as a city in the Netherlands, is, it is a coincidence. <laughs> it has nothing, um, not a history of peace, so to say, before the peace palace and the conferences. Uh, but somehow Nicholas II uh, in 1899 wanted to have this conference in The Hague and then Andrew Carnegie, he decided that The Hague should be the place for the Peace Palace and they had another conference. And they started building and there were more wars and in 1913 um, the palace opened. And here you see two of the items from this um, souvenir collection. Uh, you can also, also sort of further um, diversify the collection between this type of souvenirs. Carnegie has become a, a cigar brand, and but also the sort of memorials which are more, I could say, uh, more serious, like the medals eh, with the Carnegie on it. They are all part of, the, of this collection that's in my talk. Now here we have the palace again. This is the name of the architect, uh, Le Cordonnier. He came from Lille, France, and so the palace in, is in a sort of uh, historic style, uh, hybrid style, and it was hugely criticized at the time in Dutch architectural debate. Uh, the, they, they said it lacked 
truth and it lacks character. So we are quite a sort of moral country in that respect. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it is there. And it was a competition, eh? so he won the competition. And uh, you can see in the middle here the, the flag of the United Nations, designed by Donald McLaughlin in 1945. This is the emblem of the United Nations in terms of its peace uh, branch. And what you can also see here is a photo I took on 18 July when this airplane was had crashed above eastern Ukraine. And uh, just to show you that uh, at the Peace Belt they are very much aware that they are part of ongoing conflicts today. And they had the flag half-mast here at that point. And you know there were like maybe 300 people killed. Um, to understand <laughs> the importance of the palace, and it's so actually funny that none of you really uh, have visited it, and it's you can, you can visit it, but it's restricted. I'll show you here another effort in 1902, so before the palace was built. This is a war and peace museum by Jan Bloch in Luzern, Switzerland. Uh, it is part of uh, the whole thing that I'm talking about is part of a very important <coughs> international peace movement already starting in uh, mid-19th century. British people involved, British um, organizations involved, uh, Quakers involved. Um, but in um, peace museums were quite rare and war museums. So this is one of the <laughs> you can see it's quite humble when we compare it to the Peace Palace. Um, but Jan Bloch, he was he was a very uh, important person. He he wrote a big volume in Russian first, then in in, in English um, about uh, war and peace, the the things that led to war. Uh, he was part of a group uh, including Beta von Suttner, who was. Um, a woman advocating peace, hugely popular novel, uh, War Against War, she wrote at the time, hugely popular, be turned into a film also by a Danish director. So we have a, a very important history here of peace materialized uh, in the end through the Peace Palace. I'll show you the garden side just to impress you because you can <laughs> see uh, what it's about. And it's sort of, yeah, when you see it, it just supports the idea that it's totally highbrow culture is also called a palace. It's aristocratic, yet they want peace to be ruling, of course. Huh? So it has a certain uh, relevance also. Garden made by a British garden architect, a certain Mawson. It's all documented. And although it is a building uh, on peace, it can never escape war. And it has been that way from the very first start. Uh, there were political cartoons uh, mocking the sort of aristocratic, bourgeois uh, bah, thing of the peace palace eh? and saying like this is not real life and it goes on until today of course and I, I just chose a, a modern uh, cartoon because it shows the actual interior of the palace uh, this is a Dutch cartoonist um, who in 1999 drew the conflict in the former Yugoslavia with a certain like 14 parties on the table here we see Rod Carrington, who was charged. Here you see the Dutch minister, who was at that time chair of the EU. All the parties, of course, are uh, trying to <laughs> shoot uh, one another <coughs> on the table. And you see this diplomat trying to negotiate in conference, whereas they think no, it's no use, more, more or less. Um, I hope I'm not offending anyone from the Eastern European countries, but you know these political cartoons, we've seen it can lead to outrage, as in Denmark, 
anyway, this has been, it's now like 25 years ago or something, so I thought it might be safe. But just to show you that it's, it's quite, um, it's quite uh, relevant. Eh? And there's even, when you go to The Hague, there are protests in front of the gate. So internationally, uh, the, the peace palace is alive. Um, and yet, the actual negotiations have nothing to do with this building. They are held at another place. But it starts to symbolize any sort of conflict. And um, if you enter the palace, you see the ground stairs here in marble. They were uh, made from Italian marble. And they are modeled after the Paris Opera by Garnier. So it has these references in architecture as well. Um, so that's the, the main thing. Uh, just to show you a little bit more, uh, because it's quite impressive. This is the hall. It, it's also part, it looks more <laughs> or as, as like a cloister if you're inside. Uh, so it's like draped around the courtyard. There's these uh, beautiful halls. And you see here one of the gifts uh, of the nations when it um, was built. There was a French uh, diplomat and baron who had a great idea that all the nations wanting peace, it was 25 at the time, should donate uh, an art object and should contribute with uh, ma uh, building materials reflecting their country. So this is the Russian gift. Uh, and here's the decoration in a sort of arts and crafts Art Nouveau manner. Um, this is the courtyard actually with the Danish fountain in a, uh, also Danish ceramic uh, porcelain factory. And this is inside the, the basin. You have a sort of Japanese Art Nouveau-ish <laughs> Uh, fish uh, decoration. These are uh, ice beers. I don't know why they're there. Here are seals. It's a beautiful fountain. I cannot say otherwise, but it's beautiful. And are unique pieces, of course. And they have an upper room uh, where uh, there are beautiful Japanese wall tapestries, um, finely gobelin technique uh, with Japanese flowers and birds. And in the same room in the corners, China donated four huge vases. They are like that. And on the floor, Turkey donated a carpet. So it unites uh, gifts from all the countries. And that it's nice that all these countries want to contribute to peace. Again, uh, if you enter the building, you see details. And the details vary. They have this historicist uh, iconography, going back to, of course, Roman Greek languages, all to do with peace and with peace goddesses, etc. And um, this is a more. Dutch Art Nouveau-ish uh, decoration of pillars. Here you see a gift from the municipality of The Hague, which was a ceramic factory at the time, uh, making these vases. And here, what you can see is interesting, in one of the assembly rooms today, each country has its own chair and uh, has embroidered emblem of the country on the back of the chairs. So they are represented equally when they have uh, some sort of conference or negotiation on a conflict. And so I had two of them here. Uh, so you can, I guess, I hope, <laughs> imagine that an experience of the real building somehow is uh, always important. It has its value. It has its value also in uh, sort of communicating the message of peace. Uh, it is, you cannot escape the importance of the real material building. Although <coughs> the Peace Palace has a website, the website has similar images, not all are, are there, I took some of them, but similar. 
um, but it is important to go there. And um, materiality, therefore, cannot be replaced, I think, by a web experience. Uh, it is perhaps an open door, but I think it is important to realize. And um, what is also really important is spatiality. If you go there, and you can sort of imagine it from this thing, it's huge and it has the atmosphere of either a church or a cloister, more cloister, I think. And it's also quite, and there's marble, etc. So yeah, you can understand uh, the importance. Um, so it has always an extra value above other media. But um, it is also has a problem, because it's not always open. You can book uh, a tour. It's very, like, one hour something. But it's closed when they have conferences, etc. So it's not always open. And we need other media. And this has happened um, through, of course, souvenirs. <coughs> they, uh, the souvenir objects connected to the palace uh, sort of spread the peace message in another way. They popularize it, uh, of course, and it's the lowbrow uh, reel. And then we get uh, to Walter Benjamin, who has, of course, analyzed as one of the first uh, scholars 19th century mass tourism and souvenir industry. He more or less, uh, well, he didn't really like souvenirs. Um, he thought uh, hor horrible because they were not individual um, material objects to memorize, but they were commercially uh, produced and they directed a certain form of remembering uh, in often very horrible uh, forms. Although he himself, he sort of loved the snow globe souvenir because this reminded him of his childhood in Berlin uh, when he was looking outside the window and it snowed. So in a sense he contradicts himself <laughs> and he hates the souvenir but yet he has a snowball souvenir and actually personalizes this souvenir. Uh, the Peace Palace is in tourist guides from 1914 onwards, I checked them. Um, and uh, what we also have of course is the symbolists actually testifying to the importance of any sort of simple material object. So even a souvenir can be of huge importance for a person. And this is, so this is my sort of comment. A souvenir can be invested with personal memories, even if it's sort of kitsch souvenir. And Bart, of course, comes also in because he says that any sort of uh, image or um, material object lends itself for a sort of mytho-poesy -po poetry, um, saying you can stereotype it, but you can stereotype a nation, a uh, person. In this case, you can stereotype peace, you can say. But on the other hand, uh, we'll see more souvenirs. You can also stereotype the Dutch. Um, now, this is part of the souvenir collection that I work with. And I came across it uh, because it is online. And that's, uh, so I typed in Peace Palace and I actually saw this as the first thing. Not the Peace Palace, but the collection. So uh, then I started thinking, there's something happening here. And uh, this is the guy, man, who is the collector. And, and I contacted him and we are now having a nice collaboration. Uh, part of his collection, there is all kinds of souvenirs. And this, so some are political, actually. This is the, uh, a fan for the 1899 tribunal with all the parties on the table and it is for a Mont uh, liqueur. So it is 
mocking and caricaturizing <coughs> again the aristocrats. Here you have the simple um, vase, uh, a cookie box with the peace palace in a sort of decorative art deco. And here we have an example of the mytho-poesie of Bart, where the du Dutch people are, of course, always associated with clogs. And in this case, <laughs> clogs with an uh, image of the peace palace on it. Now, in 1912, um, if you start looking at how they appreciate this type of material culture, I came up, I found uh, Gustav Pazarek, who was a uh, curator in the museum in Stuttgart, and he wrote Good and Bad Taste in Industrial Arts, and he actually devotes a section to kitsch. And he has a nice sort of classification, hurrah kitsch, devotalian kitsch is a religious, uh, geschenk kitsch as a gift, reclame kitsch, uh, advertising it, and what he calls actualiteitskitsch, timeliness, well, specific happening. Um, and it goes on, and a museum uh, in Frankfurt in 2006 also um, did some good research on souvenirs. They come up with less normative categories, but interesting. Here are Eignis souvenirs, Mainun, Hotel, and you have the architectural miniatures, they are called bonsai buildings <laughs> as souvenirs. So there's a really rich field in terms of souvenir as material object, uh, and how does it relate to the real thing. I, I go into this in my paper, I cannot do it now, but, but it has a whole different uh, perspective on um, what it means to be a souvenir and to collect souvenirs. And of course, it has also to do with the culture of collecting in the 19th century. Benjamin saw that already. Uh, a collector wants to also buy souvenirs for him or herself. And then the aura of the original thing uh, gets sort of imitated in the souvenir, but the souvenir of a Peace Palace building, I think, keeps its particularity because of the goal of the Peace Palace. It, there's only one Peace Palace, and it's quite unique, I, I showed you, so there is an important issue there, but I must go on. <laughs> um, so I would say that also, the, this, despite the aesthetic debate, and uh, it connects with the palace itself because this was also debated in terms of taste and style and even souvenirs, you have good taste souvenirs, bad taste souvenirs uh, there is anthropological meaning, sociological meaning like the gift, remember when, when you remember friends when you are away so you buy a souvenir to give to friends Marcel Proust has said it, it's not the gift that so charms me it's the gesture and the thought uh, Marcel Mauss has a whole theory on the exchange of gifts and you can sort of put the souvenir and the memorial into that uh, discourse. Religious souvenirs can, can sort of remember uh, or, or memorize sorrow, pain, devotion and they have been used like that since the Middle Ages. Uh, societal critique, we can imagine that for example if you go to Beijing now you don't have a snow globe but a smog globe which is sort of critique. Uh, a holiday is a social anthropological phenomenon. You buy souvenirs on a holiday or whatever. And there are lots of case studies here in volumes by Marius Quint, Nicholas Saunders. There is uh, an, a good volume, Subjective Objects by Claire, um, where we are sort of, Claire, <laughs> but I contributed too, we uh, discussed how objects are invested with meaning. So I think the symbolist, and it goes back to around 1900, they sort of show us the way of personalizing objects, whether they are souvenirs, handkerchiefs, whatever. That's why Proust 
is also important because he gets touched by a cookie and, and uh, with anything. So there's more uh, interesting literature there. And there's also, of course, the memorial uh, aspect. The Peace Palace is, of course, not a thing, a building for a traumatic experience. The Dutch were not involved in World War I. We were neutral, but all around us, there were atrocities and horror. Uh, so there is a difference between a memorial that has uh, been erected like in Nagasaki, where there's bombing, etc., and the Peace Palace. And yet it is, of course, a memorial too. So there's uh, a tension. And uh, you need to, to think about that because the Peace Palace comes up, I think, again and again, as being something, well, it's only one Peace Palace, it's unique. Not, not referring to trauma at the spot, but to war in general and, and problems of war in general. So um, that was important too. And then I came to the web collection part. So this is actually the translation <coughs> of the material culture via the web. And was this collection? You can uh, look at it online. Then the web theory is that, the, of course, information is flexible. It goes across borders, cultures, individuals. And um, it's also a horizontal structure. You can combine anything. But the site that is here is quite static. You could say it's an, it's an old form of uh, web design. It's not P2P interactive. That's person-to-person uh, <laughs> -person interactive. Um, but it has some obvious, uh, let's say, it reaches out in, in a sense, because he calls it my peace palace, which means it's a, he appropriates the peace palace himself, but he also suggests it could be your peace palace, eh? our peace palace. And that actually much more so than the real building. So it's a very clever uh, name in my peace palace collection. Uh, and you can also imagine that uh, if you start to think on the possibility about possibilities of the internet and, and uh, virtual, you can make a further personal appropriation uh, when you are designing a My Peace Palace app. And that's what we are doing now. Uh, that's, so that's a follow-up of this project. I work together with a designer in order to make a My Peace Palace app. And uh, apart from connecting historical elements to uh, souvenir objects, we can extend it to sort of have people put their own memories of peace into it and make it really a P2P thing, interactive. But that's um, what we're working on and will be finished by, I hope, January. Um, but still, <coughs> though it has uh, like opportunities, I still think we lose materiality. And is that the loss of old-fashioned sensorial experience? You see, that's what I, I, I feel it is. <laughs> but I somehow cannot theorize this, because it's so obvious. Uh, you see, uh, when we go to museums, we see touch displays. Uh, what we see is that although the web has been hugely popular, people do go to real concerts. They really like to have a real experience of a disaster. For example, when this plane crashed uh, in, in July, uh, there were so many activities of people memorizing the victims at their homes and in the streets. So you can see that uh, 
whether we have information coming in through uh, web uh, news, etc., television. The, the need for a real experience is, I think, growing, basically. And uh, that is also part of material culture. So for a UNESCO heritage monument, a certain materiality is, is clearly there, uh, although the, the realm of art historians, whatever, but important. But we need to also think about how it combines with um, digital things. So um, my main conclusion is, when I looked at the media scholars, they do not address the issue of the loss of culture, or uh, materiality. They do not address the, the loss of sensorial things, touching, because that is not, of course, their realm. And they are into electronic business. So I must conclude that there would be an undeniable split between the old media that we were used to, to, to examine and the new media. And although we have this book by Vito Campanelli called Web Aesthetics, How Digital Media Affect Culture and Society, he talks about web in his aesthetic sensorial experience. <laughs> so he says that, that, of course, you can imagine there's a web design. And yet, for me, an aesthetic sensorial experience would be the real thing. But it can never be on the web. So there's uh, a problem here. And again, my question, how to compensate this loss of materiality as a loss of the material sensorial? <coughs> and although I'm, we were working on this additional project, uh, a Peace Palace app, this problem for me still remains. So my, my basic problem when I started out, my research question, uh, I have not yet solved it. Um, Anyway, that's good. Some things must be left unsolved, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was my presentation. Uh, <laughs>